Of the car emancipation rides majestic through our nation, bearing on its trains a story, liberty, a nation's glory. Roll it along, roll it along, roll it along through the nation, freedom's car emancipation, roll it along. How, like the half-insane mumblings of a fever dream, is the whole war part of his late message? At one time telling us that Mexico has nothing whatever that we can get but territory. At another showing us how we can support the war by leveling contributions on Mexico. At one time urging the national honor and security of the future, the prevention of foreign influence, and even the good of Mexico herself as among the objects of the war. At another, telling us that to reject indemnity by refusing to accept the cessation of territory would be to abandon all our just demands and to wage our war, bearing all its expenses without a purpose or definite object. So then, the national honor, security of the future, and everything but territorial indemnity must be considered the no purpose, the indefinite objects of the war. By having us it now settled that territorial indemnity is the only object, we are urged to seize by legislation here all that he was content to take a few months ago and the whole province of Lower California to boot and still to carry on the war, to take all we are fighting for and still fight on. Again, the president resolved under all circumstances to have full territorial indemnity for the expense of the war. All right, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And what that was was part of Abraham Lincoln's speech condemning President Polk's war on Mexico and calling it what it was, a, a land grab. Um, in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at, at Abraham Lincoln's writings, various writings as collected in the Library of America in a, in a two-volume collection. Um, this is the second in that series, so if you just join us, maybe you want to go back and listen to the previous episode or even go back to my previous episodes on, on Thomas Jefferson and Alexis de Tocqueville in this uh, all part of this mini series I'm engaging in on American political writing from the from the, the you know before reconstruction anyways this episode will be focusing on the writings of Abraham Lincoln during his period in like in Congress and a little bit before that specifically the years 1848 1845 to 1848 so it's a four-year period covering um, the period really when he's kind of starts getting interested in national politics starts moving to that and finally gets uh, his one term in in Congress during uh, the debates about the Mexican war and its aftermath so um, it was a notable period in American history a period with a lot of um political debate over the consequences of the Mexican War. And anyone who took their their freshman history course or high school history in the United States, they probably know that the Mexican War was one of the main reasons that the Civil War was fought, the consequences of the Mexican War, specifically what would be the role of the government in managing and regulating slavery in, in the territories, the territories that would be acquired by the war. Um, so anyways, uh, that's what we're going to do, and that's what I'm going to hope to do in this, this, this episode. Um, so like I did in the previous episode, I'm going to kind of go year by year, talk a little bit about his biography, and then, and then jump into what I think are the most important sources. We're not going to read every one. There's, there's literally um, you know, hundreds of documents. I think there must be three, 400 separate documents in this. And, and even though I'm going to be doing... Um, 
probably around 14 episodes overall on these two volumes. You know, it's there's no time or even reason to necessarily look at each each specific document, even though there's a lot of interesting ones in here. Um, so anyway, starting in 1848, um, uh, this is really when he start when Lincoln started to become interested in in national politics. He's already a lawyer by this point. He's not going to be as successful as he was. Um, before his second return to politics in the, in the later 1850s, uh, when he's making a pretty hefty income from his, from his lawyering. Um, but he's already established as a lawyer by this point. And he's working, he starts to work for the Whig nomination to Congress. And there's, a, there's an issue here called the principle of rotation, which is something that emerged in American democracy. I think it starts really with the Jackson years. Uh, it's sometimes associated with the spoil system. Essentially, as you know, the spoil system, the way it worked is you support a person in your party for a higher office. And in return for that support, in return for, you know, whipping the local voters and, and, and you know, getting, you know, helping to get elected in that local place, you're going to get some kind of office, right? I mean, you know, post office, the land office, whatever it might be, right? Uh, to kind of keep your political career going. Now, part of this is also this idea that party members at the like in Illinois, let's take Illinois because that's where Lincoln is, you know, the, the Whig party in Illinois, uh, there's going to be a rotation for high office. So that House of Representatives seats will kind of filter throughout major supporters. So it's a way of dividing up interest, right? It's very different from the career politician system we have now. And you can say what we have now is more democratic with the primaries and, and um, you know, the people electing who they want. But at the same time, you know, people criticize the United States now for having low turn turnover in congressional seats, right? That most people, most incumbents win re-election and there's kind of advantage to that. And that kind of leads to entrenched power. So maybe there's something to this kind of filtering people in and out. Um, and so basically Lincoln at this time thought it was his turn to get the nomination. Um, and remember, who chooses the nominees in these days? There weren't primaries. This is before primary elections. That's a product of like the progressive era. So the, the candidate was chosen by the party. And if you lived in a place that always voted Whig or always voted Democratic, essentially whoever was nominated would win. And, you know, again, you know, it's, it's a question whether that was Democratic, right? But it did, one, one way this was managed then was because when you have the primaries, there's kind of an advantage to the incumbent, right? But when you have this uh, principle of rotation, the advantage here is you're given high office to a lot of people. And it's a way of paying back these political favors. Uh, the local party would pay back favors and, and make sure everyone kind of gets their day in the, the sun, kind of strengthening the, the, the players in the party. Um, now, it, it, the, th the weird thing, though, is that the Whigs sort of ran, didn't run party loyalists for, for the presidency very often. Their successful runs were like soldiers, uh, Taylor um, and... So Taylor, Harrison, both who die in office, right? That's kind of some bad luck on the Whigs. And then later on, they run Winfield Scott for president. These were military people, no, not the party lawyers, but that's who they thought they could, could win the high office, right? But it, I don't know. It's, it's, it was for sort of the health of the party, this principle of rotation. And it's something that Lincoln is, is, talks about in these, in these letters. Um, but basically, he's a successful lawyer um, by this point. And I think he's... He's kind of juggling his interest in, in politics and his desire to have a political career with, with, um, with his, 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 law, his law career. 
So a lot of these documents from, from 1848 really do fit into what I'm going to call like the backroom dealings and his kind of pressuring for, um, for, for position. For instance, in one letter he writes, this is to Henry E. Doomer, before Baker left, he said to me, in accordance with what has long been an understanding between me and him, that the track for the next congressional race was clear to me. And as so far as he was concerned, and that he would say so publicly in any manner and in any time I might desire. I said in reply that as to the manner and time, I would consider a while and write him. I understand friend DeLay has already informed you of the substance above. End quote. He's polite about it, but he's basically saying, you know, isn't it my turn for, um, for the seat? But perhaps the most interesting document in this section isn't on this issue at all. And it's, it's, a, it's a letter to a guy named William, Williamson Durley. And it's, it's an abolition. He's an abolitionist. And, and Lincoln is making a case for moderation. In fact, I tried to look up this guy because I thought, well, maybe it'll be an article about him or something. And basically all you find is, is this letter. Uh, so it's, it's fairly well known, I guess, in Lincoln circles and in, in teaching. And some websites that I saw talking about it are websites that, that are, are trying to promote this as a primary source to teach. To teach. And basically his question, this is in 1845, um, um, and he's kind of arguing against the, the rise of kind of a free soil party or a separate party outside of the Whigs that, can, that would be like a committed abolitionist or a free soil party. And he, he thinks basically work within the Whig Party. So this is that, you know, moderation in this sense really means work within the Whig Party and we can get elected. Um, unfortunately, the reality is the Whig Party was not anti-slavery. It wasn't against slavery in the territory. It was a compromise party between uh, northern interests, which maybe tended towards free soilism, if not, not really abolitionism. That was a minority position at the time. But free soilism anyways. Uh, but... And Southerners who could agree on things like the tariff and banking and internal improvements, but wouldn't be able to agree on, on the slavery question, right? So the Whig Party never really ran on the, these issues. So in a sense, I understand why the Free Soilers said we need to find a separate party. But here's what Lincoln says to him. If the Whig abolitionists of New York had voted with us last fall, Mr. Clay would now be president. Whig principles in the ascendant and Texas not annexed. Whereas by the division, all that either had been at stake in that contest was lost. So basically, he's arguing that the free soilers are what we now call, you know, running spoiler candidates, which are stealing from the, the Whig Party, which is, you know, better than the Democratic Party, at least in this context with uh, the Mexican War, right, uh, and the annexation of Texas and all that, which, of course, the Whig Party was opposed to. That was the Democratic Party that, that pushed that, and that, of course, opens up the door to, to the Civil War. He writes later, this general proposition is doubtless correct that... Um, what, what is the pressure? He says, we are not to do evil that good may come. So this general proposition is doubtless correct, but did it apply? If by your votes you could have prevented the extension of slavery, would it not have been the good and not evil for you to use your votes, even though it involved the casting of them for a slaveholder? By the fruit of the tree is known, the evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. If the fruit of electing Mr. Clay would have been to prevent the extension of slavery, could the act of electing have been evil? Quote. So the issue being Clay was a slave owner, right? And during the election, he, of course, loses. Was, was that to Polk? No, he lost to, to, to Jackson in 32. So, yeah, that's what I think. 
So anyways, he was key in forming the Whig Party, though. Um, so that's the argument Lincoln's making. It's basically for you, you, the, you kind of take the lesser. It's the lesser two people arguments. We all we we're familiar with that. So anyways, that's all that's really important in in the 1845 documents. 1846. Uh, this is the year he he does get his nomination to to Congress. Um, and that's that's the focus of it. So we got a lot more here about the politics of nomination. We do have one. Um, I don't want to say too much more about that. He obviously was nominated and, and eventually elected to serve, and he would he served one term. Um, and I think he he goes in forty seven, I guess. Yeah, forty seven to forty nine was his his term in in Congress. Uh, Congress didn't meet as long as it did now. I think it was actually quite late in forty seven after the forty six election that he went there, and the lame duck periods were longer as well. But I don't want to say too much about the politics of nomination because I already dealt with it. But we have a really, we have a poem here. I think it's the only poem in this collection called My Childhood Home, I See It Again. I searched around on YouTube and actually people have set this to music, at least a few of the stanzas. It's a quite a long poem, uh, which is a nostalgic look at his, his um, you know, the place he grew up in. I can imagine why this this ends up having a place in kind of Lincoln lore um, because of the focus on Lincoln's kind of humble beginnings. It's mostly about this the, the scenery, the imagery, the friends he had, and, and that kind of stuff. That's all. Um, it's a nice little poem, though, about three pages long. Um, but there is something here about his religion. So he... Um, it's a document called Handbill Replying to Charges of Infidelity to the Voters of the 7th Congressional District. So this is like his, his, his um, was it Kennedy's you know, speech about Catholicism, where he's kind of, some, some rumors got out there that he was an atheist or something, or he was not a Christian, or not a true believer or something, or didn't believe in God. I don't know, some kind of rumor got out there. And so he has to respond to it to the voters. And, and that's what this document is. It's basically his his trying to prove to the voters that he's a real Christian. Um, and it is one of the few documents we have from this period and maybe in this whole collection that really gives us a, a halfway decent window into perhaps what Lincoln's uh, attitude towards, towards religion was. And here's what he writes. So it's a very short document, less than a page long. He said, that I am not a member of any Christian truth as church is true, but I have never spoke, never denied the truth of the scripture, and I have never spoken with intentional disrespect of religion in general, or of any denomination of Christians in particular. It is true that in early life I was inclined to believe in what I understand is called the doctrine of necessity, that is, that the human mind is impelled to action or held to rest by some power over which its mind itself has no control. And I have sometimes with one, two, or three, but never publicly tried to maintain this opinion and argument. The habit of arguing thus, however, I have left entirely off for more than five years. And I add here that I always understood the same opinion to be held by several of the Christian denominations. So it's it's kind of a deism, I guess. Um, that's sort of how I read this. But he's not so interested in the actual existence of God, which he just sort of says, I, I guess he sort of implies... A God, but what's more is this this idea of um, that the that it's kind of a fatalism about free will is is what's the key here. So you, you can't have that without a God. It seems to me, right? He says there's some power over which the mind itself has no control. If you believe that, I mean, I guess it could be nature or habit or something like that, or some maybe um, 
certain ways of looking at free will, you know, because seeing our mind such as a big computer, there are kind of me mechanistic views of the mind out there I'm, I'm familiar with. But certainly I, I think Lincoln's probably coming at it more from a, a deistic point of view. Um, he says a little bit more here. I do not think I could myself be brought to support a man for office whom I knew to be open enemy of or scoffer at religion. Leaving the higher matter of eternal consequences between him and his maker, I still do not think any man has the right thus to insult the feelings and injure the morals of the community in which he may live. Um, so what he's saying here is, yeah, you know, although that's kind of my view and I have this kind of fatalistic, deistic uh, view of, of the mind, at the same time, I mean, I don't support voting in atheists who might spit on the morals of the community, right? Which is kind of a democratic value, I suppose, that, you know, the people in office should represent the people, you know, in the district or whatever. So anyways, it's an interesting little document. It's only about a page long, but it's, it's something we should look at. And, and it's re reproduced quite often on uh, online. It's easy to find. But, you know, it's at least for now, and I haven't read all the collection yet, it's kind of the closest we get to a, a, a kind of view of his, his religious thinking. Maybe it's, at the end of the day, it's a political dodge, and he really was basically a deist. Um, and, you know, he got called out on that, and, and as a good politician, he had to kind of dance his way around that, and, and that's what this, this handbill is. It doesn't matter, because in the end of the day, he gets elected anyways. All right, so 1847. Uh, that's all I want to say about 1846. 1847, so he's, um, you know, a, a congressman-elect um, for from Illinois, uh, he gets to, Congress convenes in December 6th of 1847, so almost a year after the election, Congress convenes, and again, Congress didn't meet for as long as it did and continuously as it, does, as it did now, and the lame duck periods were a lot longer, I think. The president didn't come to like March, uh, that's just the way it was in those days. Um, of course, the big political issue during his time in Washington was the Mexican War, and that's the focus of it. So he's going to oppose Polk's policies, and that's that's going to be what he's kind of known for: is opposing Polk's policies about the war, opposing the the war as a land grab, um, and and then the aftermath of that, like what's going to happen to that. And of course, all of the 1950s politics of the United States are going to be about the fate of of the the, the territories in the newly acquired Mexican territories. Um, there there is a case here that. He, he took as a lawyer, which is another kind of Dred Scotty case. I, I don't I don't know if there's a special kind of legal language to refer to that, but it's a Dred Dred Scotty case, and I'm getting this from the chronology put together by our editor. Uh, Lincoln argues that Bryant slave family. Where is it? Sorry, I won't go. No, I'll go back a little bit and I'll go back a line. In October, represents slave owner Robert Matson at habeas corpus hearing in Coles County. Lincoln argues that Bryant's slave family Matson had brought from Kentucky to do seasonal farming on his Illinois land were not state residents and thus were not freed by anti-slavery provisions in Illinois law. Court rules against Matson and frees Bryant's. So Bryant's is a slave. So um, the Matson family brought this slave to Illinois. Had him working, uh, apparently a seasonal farm work. It doesn't say if he was paid for that or not, but he was the property. And Lincoln actually argues that Illinois didn't have jurisdiction over this property. It, it seems an odd 
position for him to make. I guess he's just making, you know, he's just hired as a lawyer to do it. I don't know if that represented his views at the time, morally, um, but he seems to make a legal case that's similar to what the the people who opposed Dred Scott's freedom made, which was that, uh, you know, essentially the courts don't have jurisdiction and, and the Dred Scott decision said that, but also said that even if they did, you know, there's really nothing stopping someone from bringing their property to another state, even if that property is human beings, and that state has has laws against slavery. That's what. So it's kind of a troubling uh, part of his his legal career, I guess. At least that's that's how I read this here. Um, but that's the highlight of forty seven is going to be, I guess, that case, and then his his arrival in in Washington. Um, he's got a very, very good, he's got some notes, like fragments on, on things here. Uh, one called Fragments on the Tariff, which are sort of, um, I guess, like little documents he was etching out to prepare for Congress, I think. Um, we had another poem, by the way. I said the other one was his only one. This is a poem called The Bear Hunt. Um, but after that, we have this little document called Fragments on the Tariff, which is really, really good. It's a really good, succinct summary of the weakest weak position on on tariffs okay so it it has it has that but if you read this whole document you get really a strong argument for a labor theory of of value right kind of almost now that's not invented by the marxists or marxists and marx got the labor theory of value from other people right uh, we're gonna have to start to think about to what degree did these kind of Marxist emigres from Germany who come to America after 1848, after the revolutions of 1848, to what degree did they affect the cultivation of the Republican Party and, yeah, or Lincoln himself? But, but this document about tariffs is really about, about labor. And he kind of, you know, so he's got this labor theory value throughout it, but then he, he argues that, like, even if that case, you know, isn't it always best that we buy things the cheapest, right? So if, if something can be made more cheaply in, in, in China, why don't we just import it from China without a tariff, right? So he asks this question. It seems to be an opinion very generally entertained that the condition of a nation is best whenever it can buy cheapest. But this is not necessarily true because if at the same time and at the same cause it is compelled to sell correspondingly cheap, nothing is gained. Then it is said the best condition is when we buy cheapest and sell dearest. But this again is not necessarily true because with both of these we might have scarcely anything to sell or which is the same thing to buy with. To illustrate this, suppose a young man in the present state of things is laboring the year round at $10 per month, which amounts to a year of $120. A charge in affairs enables him to buy supplies at the half at half the former price to get $50 per month for his labor, but at the same time deprives him of employment during all the months of the year but one. In this case, the goods have fallen one half and labor risen five to one. It is still plain at the end of the year, the labor is $20 poorer than under the old state of things. So his argument is, is what we really need is constant employment. That's not, uh, we need workers to have, you know, year-round employment. So tariffs become a way of promoting that a domestic industry and a domestic market and an industrial market that can provide that. that. That's the heart of his argument in the fragment of tariffs. But it's awash with this essential idea of a labor theory of value. Um, the idea that it's really labor that's driving the market, it's labor that's driving consumption, it's labor that's driving production. He makes some other interesting arguments. A little bit later on, he, he essentially says, you know, if any time all labor should cease, 
all existing provisions would equally divide among the people, and at the end of the single year, there'd be no one basically alive. You know, that if no one works, nothing is produced. That's obvious, right? Um, but he goes on to say, like, people do, engaged in useless labor is as bad as people engaged in idleness from that position, right? So if you have everyone engaged in no work, idleness, everyone dies. But if everyone's engaged in useless or idle work, it has that same effect, right? So he, he doesn't quite get to the bullshit jobs argument, I guess, but uh, it's here. He, he's, he's aware that there's a lot of labor that is kind of wasteful, wasteful of people, people's times, time and effort. And I, I think we're really in a situation now where there's a lot of that in the world. I, I see it all the time in China where you have, um, you know, you go on the subway and there's, or in the library and there's an x-ray machine and, uh, you know, for your bags, you know, and someone's on the other end of that supposed to watch for bombs or whatever, but obviously no one's bringing a bomb into, you know, your local library in this part of China, you know, but someone's just there on their cell phone, right? And yes, she has a job. Usually they're women, but sometimes men. She has a job, but the job doesn't really produce anything. It's wasting her time to be there. What she, all she gets out of that is, a, is an income, right? But um, are there better ways we can allot labor and, and just give labor more meaning, I guess? And I think there's something Lincoln's on about here. Now, even though it's all about the tariff, there's something he's on to here about if we're going to have to work, if work is essential to our lives, and maybe it won't be in, in 50 or 100 years, who knows? But for now, it still is. We, we need to make it valuable and meaningful and, and the source of our value and pleasures and, and, and all that. And, and he thinks the tariff can have a role in, in contributing to that. Maybe he overstates it, but uh, it's, you know, this document is a nice summation of, of his views on this important Whiggish policy, which was the tariff. They were the big supporters of it. Um, what's next here? Uh, oh, the spot resolutions. This is kind of an important event in, in Lincoln's time in Congress. It was December 40. 47, so after he got there. And it's just a series of resolutions. It's like a congressional revolution he offered up, which basically says that President Polk should could, needs to prove that the event that started the Mexican War happened on American soil, not on Mexican soil. And it did happen on Mexican soil. So he was, you know, right to ask the president to show that. You know, nothing really comes of it, but he's basically forcing... The president, Polk, Polk at this time a Democrat, to to prove the instigating cause of the of the Mexican War. All right, so jumping ahead to 1848. So now we have his full year in Congress, and that the focus of this year is going to be the Mexican War and its its consequences. Politically, you also have the nomination of Zachary Taylor. Uh, a, a hero of the war. Uh, we actually met him before in this podcast. If you listen to my Melville series, I think it was in the third volume of the Melville series, we looked at his short fiction. And one of his earliest writings was a series of comical um, vignettes about Zachary Taylor, uh, one of the heroes of the Mexican War. He's one of the two heroes of the Mexican War that the Whig Party uplifted to be presidential candidates. It was Taylor first. He died a couple years into his term. Um, and then... Um, then you have Winfield Scott, who lost. He lost to, to Fillmore. Now, the, his most important speech here was given in, on January 12, 1848, which is simply his, his speech to the House about the war on Mexico. And, and his argument here is, it's what I alluded, it's what I showed in the very first um, part of this episode, as a kind of a, a, a prelude to this episode, 
when I, I read a bit of this speech, is essentially he argues that the war is a land grab and nothing really beyond that. That it's just it's just conquest, and there's there was no justification for it outside of that. And the, and he kind of goes through systematically all the different arguments for the war and shows how they didn't really pan out. And at the end of the day, everyone admits that it was about seizing seizing the land in the West. And he actually goes back to the spot resolution at one point saying, as a nation should not and the Almighty will not be evaded, so let him attempt no evasion. This is Polk he's talking about. No equivocation. And if so, answering, he can show that the soil was ours where the first blood of the war was shed, that it was not within the inhabited county, country, or if within such that the inhabitants have submitted themselves to the civil authority of Texas or of the United States, and that the same is true of the site of Fort Brown, that I am with him for his justification. In that case, I shall be most happy to reverse the vote I gave the other day. So he puts his challenge forth. Like, I'll vote for the war. I'll support the war if, if you can prove that blood was first shed by Mexicans against Americans on American soil or land under American jurisdiction. So that's the speech on the Mexican War, and that's his main argument, that it's unjustified and it's a land grab. So... There's quite a few of letters that basically feed off of this or talk about different issues about politics and the power of the South. One of these is and the, and the power of the South in driving the Democratic Party to its electoral victories and, and ultimately to the war. And one of these, which is a letter he wrote in February 13, 1848, to a man named Josephus Hewitt, where uh, it's, I think that it's, it's to a, he's a Whig from the South, I guess. And the argument being here is that, you know, back to the three-fifths compromise with the formation of the Constitution, that that three-fifths compromise gave the South, you know, on, you know, all this political power that they wouldn't have had otherwise, right? Because the idea of in, in you know, the House of Representatives is, is every voter gets a kind of an equal share in the House of Representatives, right? The Senate will be representing the states, the House, the people. And the way we do that is every 10 years we do a census, we count up the people, we count up the voters, and we, we give seats based on how many voters or how many people potentially could vote, right? Because I guess children would be counted as well. Um, but of course, the fact that slaves were counted three-fifths of a person, it gave the South all this extra voting power, right? And so Lincoln's talking about this here, and it, it, he's just, of course, very, very much aware that that the Whigs, the, the Northern Whigs and uh, just the northern faction of the Whigs are going to be kind of overpowered by this southern, the cotton Whigs, you know, and the Democrats, for that matter, are going to, because most of the South vote Democratic, they're going to, um, you know, it's going to become increasingly true in the, in the 1850s. So all this just kind of makes it more difficult to, to really, uh, you know, legislate in, in a positive way in his view. So that's, that's his views on the Three-Fifths Compromise. Um, he, he writes to other people about abolition as well. He, he, he seems to, I don't know if it's just because the editor is focusing on these documents, but we have some interesting comments where people really ask him pretty directly, it seems, to what degree is he an abolitionist? To what degree does he support the abolitionists? And he's a politician, so he, he has to be careful in how he responds to, to them. Now, this letter has a couple, it's like a response to, to several questions. One is, well, the first few questions, yeah, the first two questions are essentially about Taylor and Scott and how the Whigs use Taylor and Scott politically. First Taylor, of course, with his nomination and later on Winfield Scott, heroes of the war, um, but they oppose the war. So isn't this a bit hypocritical? And he responds to this 
you know, you know, in in a political way, I guess. And he even like points out at one point that like Taylor actually came out publicly against the war before going on and doing his duty as a soldier. Um, I think the related question is like if you oppose the war, you call it unconstitutional. Doesn't this take away from the laurels of of Taylor and and, and Scott? And he kind of pirouettes on that too. But the key question here for our interest is the question quote that he, that the letter writer originally asked. And we uh, have we as a party ever gained anything by falling in com company with abolitionists? And Lincoln says, yes, we gained our only national victory by falling in company with them in the election of General Harrison. This is actually the inverse of that previous letter we looked at where he's 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 dealing with the spoiler issue, saying like when the abolitionists were the free soilists, at least, which I think is the meaning here is a bit confused. I think I'm not sure if the, the, this letter writer, Usher Linder, wrote this original letter to Lincoln, really meant abolitionists, the very small number of people at this time who were, you know, committed abolitionists, or just people in the free soil movement who, you know, weren't all abolitionists, certainly. But yeah, but and I don't know which one really helped Harrison get elected. But he says, you know, that was the victory of our alliance with the abolitionists, which is, of course, the opposite of when the Free Soilers broke away and under Van Buren and, and ran their own, own candidate, right? So, again, I think the abolitionists here are really, he's talking about the Free Soil faction of them. So th this letter goes with that previous one about this kind of the, the need for a, a Whig party. If it's going to have, it needs to win, and to win it's going to, need the support of the free soilists. The free soilists can't go alone, right? But he, he's also aware of how powerful the cotton wings are, I think, through the do thanks to the, the three-fifths compromise. Um, other documents here basically address and talk about directly the immorality of the war. There's one to um, John Peck, uh, written in May of 1848, which which straight up calls the war uh, of, of a crime against humanity, essentially, like a crime against even divine law and human law. Um, so there's a lot like that. Um, the only other thing I want to say about this selection of, of, of essays, because it brings up another issue, is, and it's a rather long document um, that makes up the, you know, the bulk of the, the rest of this section of the book, um, is... Polk's veto of an internal improvements bill. And so in addition to the war, this seemed to be the other political issue that this Congress was dealing with. And, you know, they passed this internal improvements bill and then Polk vetoes it. And then, of course, it's then up to Congress to debate that. And Lincoln gave a very, very long speech. Um, I wonder, I mean, I actually have a hard... I, well, there's, well, there's first a speech on internal improvements which is about 10 pages long. And then there's a, another speech called The Speech on the Presidential Question, which is about 20 pages long, which meant he probably stood up there for about an hour um, talking about General Taylor and, and Polk's veto uh, sometime in September 1848. It's in the midst of the, of, of the electioneering, right? The, the campaign's getting going. But both deal with this, this internal improvement effort. So I'm tr I tried to find the details about this, and, and what I found um, in Wikipedia, go-to place for this kind of research. I found out a little bit about this. 
Of course, if you just search like the Congress, this is the 30th Congress, by the way, the one Lincoln was in. It was the 30th Congress. If you just look up the 30th Congress, there's only one bill that really passed. I mean, it, I think the Department of Interior was approved, was, was formed. He signed, Polk signed that bill, which created the Department of the Interior, which is something dealing with internal improvements and, and things like that. But um, it's the Coinage Act, which was a kind of a renewal of, an, of a previous Coinage Act. So there wasn't that much legislation that, that got passed in this um, notable legislation. Of course, I guess there was still the funding bills and all that. But uh, anyways, here's what it says. This is in the article on the Polk presidency or on James Polk. Congress passed the River and Harbors Bill in 1846 to provide half a million to improve port facilities, but Polk vetoed it. He believed the bill was unconstitutional because it unfa unfavorably favored particular areas, including ports that had no foreign trade. Polk considered internal improvements to be matters of the states. Okay. Um, so jumping ahead, uh, Congress in 1847 passed another internal improvements bill. He Paco vetoed it and sent Congress a full veto measure when it met in December. Similar bills continued to advance in Congress in 1848, although none reached its desks. When it came to the Capitol to sign bills on March 3rd, 1849, the last day of congressional secession, he feared that an internal improvement bill would pass Congress, and he brought with him a draft veto message. So this is talking about the one that passed in 47. Uh, that he vetoed, and then this is like Lincoln's response to it um, later on, and it gets a pretty systematic defense of 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 the Swiggish policy of improvements, the same way his his feelings about the you know banks or the tariffs all reflect kind of mainstream weak weak positions on these things. But Lincoln here adds something about this relationship between improvements and inequality, and and. You know, I think there's moments in when Lincoln kind of comes off as a little bit more radical, right? And that's something I'm looking for when I'm reading these documents is, is really how much did, you know, just, just how lefty really was Lincoln, I guess, is the way to kind of be an anachronistic in the way I kind of use the term. Um, he wrote that, or he said this, just... The just conclusion from this is that if a nation refused to make improvements, the more general kind, because their benefits may be somewhat local, a state may, for the same reason, refuse to make an improvement of a local kind because its benefits may be somewhat general. A state may well say to the nation, if you will do nothing for me, I will do nothing for you. Thus, it seems that if the argument of inequality is sufficient anywhere, it is sufficient everywhere and puts an end to improvements altogether. I hope and believe that if both the nation and the states would be in good faith in their respective spheres, do what they could in ways of improvements, what of inequality might be produced in one place might be compensated by another, and the sum of the whole might not be very unequal. Um, now, of course, the inequality he's talking about here is the inequality not of like the poor and the rich, but essentially the inequality of maybe poor and rich states, maybe. And he's making a case that it is the duty of, of the collective to invest in improving the well-being of, of the poor, right? In this case, the poor states, right? And it's also the duty then of those who have means to promote and prevent the general good, right? So it's kind of like from each according to their abilities and to each according to their needs. I guess that's, uh, if that's a little too far, I apologize, but it seems that's what he's saying. Now he's talking about states or localities or regions and to, Put the burden of internal improvements only on the states or the localities. All you're going to you're going to get improvements invested in by rich 
states and on regions and poor regions states won't have good roads and they'll just continue to be poor it'll just exacerbate those inequalities so the government then has a role in in kind of redistributing these funds so so that everyone benefits overall overall prosperity general welfare if you will uh, but otherwise both these speeches the speech on the internal improvement and the one on on the presidential question uh, question you know the question the, the second one the one uh, which is a speech on the presidential question is more of like a campaign speech promoting taylor and opposing polk in, in many ways but it also deals with with the veto so. now this whole document is kind of is framed as a debate between him and and lewis cass uh general cass in in the document which i guess you know which i'm not quite sure how this worked out because Cass was in the Senate and he was in in Congress, so or he was in the House. So these you don't meet and, and debate face to face on, on things. So, but uh, he does kind of a lot of his attacks on Polk are kind of also leveled against Cass. So he talks about the Wilmot proviso, the war, and things like that. So. Um, that's it. So what would we see in these documents? And this are again, the years 45 to 49 is, is Lincoln as a Whig politician, embracing Whig positions on the tariff, on, on, on internal improvements, and opposition to the Mexican War. And that's the heart of these documents is the, is the context of the Mexican War. And so that's all I'm going to talk about now. That's, that's, that's it. I, I think this is a, a fun little uh, collection of documents about that very important period when he was in, in Congress. Um, so in, actually, it's not completely over because uh, in the next episode, we'll look at the documents in this collection that cover the years 1849 to 1854. So the heart, the, the center of this, and probably about a third of the overall kind of mass of this of the upcoming section is the can is his debate with Douglas on the Kansas Nebraska Act. Right? Remember, we know about the Lincoln Douglas debates from the, from uh, the Senate run this, the, the, that he made, but there was actually two other debates with Douglas: one on the Kansas Nebraska Act and one on I think it was the banks earlier on. We talked about it in the last episode, so that's going to be the heart of it. But we also have a little bit more on his time in Congress. Um, and then, you know, the death of his father happens, um, the election of Winfield Scott, he's an elector in that election. So he's kind of out campaigning for, for Winfield Scott. So that is, so if you're reading along, I'm going to be looking at the documents that Lincoln produced in, from 1849 to 1854 with a special focus on his debate, his speech about the Kansas-Nebraska Act which was given in 1850, in 1854. It's a really good one. And we really see, start to see signs of Lincoln's, Lincoln's greatness. Um, so um, that's it for now. So as always, thanks for, for listening. Leave your comments below or send me an email at one, sorry, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and I will see you next time as we continue to uh, explore the works of Lincoln and as we see America get as we see America get deeper and deeper into the sectional crisis of, of the 1850s. So see you next time. Now look up the